So we're um, starting off with uh, Acts 19, 20 and 21, and then we'll move over to Acts 20. So after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Now we're over to uh, chapter 20. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some of the Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Segut, Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Titicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But when we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, and seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell, from, fell to the ground from the third storey and was picked up dead. Paul went down there, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. He then went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Good evening, church family. It's good for us to be here on this chilly winter's evening as we work and we continue our work through the book of Acts. Have you ever fallen asleep in a sermon? Poor Eutychus might have tumbled off his perch in Acts 20, but it's humbling to notice that what took Paul many hours of preaching, a near-fatal napping in one of his listeners, takes most preachers only a few minutes on a Sunday afternoon. This is the blurb from the back of a book titled Saving Eutychus by Gary Miller and Phil Campbell. I think it's on the screen. There it is. This is a book for preachers, and the subtitle of the book is How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake. Maybe you're prone to the mid-sermon snooze. About 15 minutes in, the shoulders sink, the eyes slowly droop shut, the voice from the front fades into the back of your mind as it talks on and on. Maybe your mid-sermon stupor takes more of a mental form than physical sleeping, you know. The mind wanders to the week's, a week ahead's activities. The eyes glaze over. The open Bible tips shut. The phone comes out of the pocket. The Instagram app loads up. 
Our Bible passage puts two short stories before us today. One short story about a big segment of Paul's third missionary journey, and another short story involving a sermon sleepyhead's miraculous resurrection. Both short stories actually tie together to teach us something important about Paul's mission work. Paul's mission work is more than evangelizing new converts. It also involves strengthening existing believers by preaching God's word. Strengthening existing believers by preaching God's word. We saw this idea come up two weeks ago in Alex's sermon, and it's come up again in today's passage. Now, in keeping with the second story, I don't want anyone to fall asleep, so I've tried hard to make this sermon engaging. So, stay awake, stay alive, and listen up as we together learn from the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word shown to us in the Bible. Please help us to concentrate on what you have to say. Help us to get rid of all the distractions in our minds. Please help me to get out of the way that your word may shine clearly forth. We pray that we may not merely listen to your word, but do what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage begins after the riot in Ephesus. But the story of the riot in Ephesus We heard about that last week from Chris. That's a bit of a sidetrack. So to understand our passage and indeed the whole rest of the book of Acts, we need to go back to chapter 19, verse 21, that first passage Gav read. It says this, 1921, After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. Paul's already decided where he's going to go. He's going to go through Macedonia, Achaia, then to Jerusalem, and then all the way across to Rome. So we pick up our story in chapter 20, verse 1, to see how this plan will play out. 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Notice that before he goes off, he gathers the church in Ephesus together, to encourage them. There's a good chance that this is actually Paul's last time he's in Ephesus. And so what does he do in these final hours with these people? He encourages them. He preaches the word of God to them. After doing this, he sets out, verse 2, he travels through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. I've got a map up here on the screen to help us get a better idea of what's going on. That's Asia, or sorry, the province of Asia Minor. If we zoom in a bit, there we go. You can see he starts in Ephesus, there on the bottom right, that bottom green dot. Then he goes up north, up to Troas, across the water, west to uh, throughout the region of Macedonia, and then down south through Achaia. Now, Achaia, Greece, same thing. And you can see he ends in Corinth there. If you know your story of Acts well, then you might realize that, hang on a sec, Paul's been to these places before. You're right, he has. Remember, this is his third missionary journey. He's now revisiting many places he's already been to. So if we go to the next slide, you can see his second journey. And then if we compare with the the next one again, the third journey, you can see that it's much of the same route. He is revisiting people he's already met and already seen converted. Why? 
Why does he do this? Why bother revisiting people? Wouldn't it be better to go out to new areas that he hasn't preached before and see more people converted? Why does Paul do this? Well, look at the words in the Bible. Verse 2, he traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people. Paul is back to his strengthening work that Alex taught us about two weeks ago. He's speaking many words of encouragement. You see, Paul's mission work is more than evangelizing new converts. It also involves strengthening existing believers by preaching God's word. It's not just about making new disciples, as important as that is. It's also about presenting those disciples fully mature in Christ, Colossians 1.28. How precious it must have been for Paul to return to all these towns and villages and see how people had grown years and years later. How precious a thing it is for us to watch people grow over the years into godly Christian men and women. How encouraging it is as a Christian friend or as a growth group leader or a youth group leader to see people making real progress in the faith. Let me share some little stories with you of of, of this thing happening. About six years ago, uh, I started to teach uh, a a Bible study group for, for people in years six to year eight at one of our morning congregations. And... Six years ago, we spent a term working through a book, learning about the structure of the Bible, you know. We've got Old Testament and New Testament. What are all the different books of the Bible? How do they all fit together? That kind of thing. I remember I made a a little poster for the Year 6 to 8 guys um, of all the books of the Bible grouped into their different genres. Fast forward six years, I found the poster in our wardrobe one day, and I stuck it on the fridge. I was like, oh, you know, it might be handy for growth group or something. I don't know. I think our real estate agent thought it was a bit odd when they did a tour of our house, but it doesn't matter. As we're sitting down for growth group one day, lo and behold, someone says in our growth group, hey, I remember that poster. You showed that to us all those years ago in 608 Bible study. How cool was that? That was really encouraging. This person was in that 608 group all those years ago, and they remembered this thing, that, this clumsy little poster that I made. It was encouraging to me to hear that God had used my clumsy little efforts to make a long-term difference in someone's Christian growth. Here's another story. Last year, at our Harrington Park 20th year anniversary, Mark Thomas, who's a long-term partner and pillar in the Harrington Park Church, um, he's actually been diagnosed only 13 months ago with motor neurone disease, and his condition has declined really rapidly and very sadly. So at our 20th anniversary last year, uh, Mark got up the front and he gave us a little, he shared with us some of the struggle and suffering that he's enduring through. And he also shared with us the importance of getting right with God uh, and the hope of life forever and the hope of a resurrected body with God forever. It was a really special interview. Anyway, I remember chatting with Mark after, after this had happened. Um, and as we were talking, up comes Liam. Here he is. What a handsome chap. Liam rocks up, and he comes up to me and Mark, and he says, Mark, I'm glad you're here. I I just want to say thank you. I remember you because you gave me my first Bible when I was in year five at Harrington Park Public School when you taught me Scripture. Isn't that amazing? I remember starting to weep as I watched this beautiful conversation unfold. As you guys all know, Liam is now a core faithful partner of our Night Church family. He serves God's people tirelessly. 
All those years ago, Mark gave Liam that Bible and it had a great gospel impact. He's still got it to this day. And on the inside front cover, it says, Presented to Liam Flower by Mark Thomas. I just think that's the coolest thing ever. It was a joy to see them reunited at that 20-year thing last year. One more story. This is Ellie and Patrick. Oh, look at them. Ellie and Patrick are also members of Night Church, as you guys know. Ellie and Pat started coming to our church in 2018. And fun fact, you know why they started, they chose our church? They're looking for a church to go. Do you know why they chose our church to turn up to? It's because Jono taught Ellie SRE when she was in year three. Is that right, year three? How cool is that? Years and years and years later. That's amazing. It's my, it's my favorite SRE story. Anyway, I remember going along to EC with Ellie and Patrick in that front room with, with Gav. Uh, they joined a growth group. They became Christians. Praise God. They got married in the middle of lockdown, and now they're both leading and have given talks at our youth group. And they're even expecting their first child in December this year. It's been a totally awesome joy. A totally awesome, and it truly has been a, tr- a true joy for me to watch these guys grow over the years into the godly people they are today. How precious a thing it is, friends, to watch people grow over the years into godly Christian men and women. I wonder if Paul shared a similar sort of feeling, a similar joy on his trip through Macedonia, revisiting all these people we'd seen in years gone by, reconnecting with believers he'd seen converted, seeing the progress in the faith they had made, visiting old friends and sharing in gospel partnership and life together. Paul came back to these believers to strengthen them with God's word. And it would have been a really precious time for all of them. Paul's journey through Macedonia ends with three months in Greece, probably through winter. Fun fact, this is probably where he writes his letter to the Romans. There you go. Verse 3, Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. The end of his three-month stay in Greece, he's keen to get back to Jerusalem, back towards Syria in that same direction. But once again, Paul encounters opposition, this time from some Jews in Greece. But once again, we're reminded that gospel increase cannot be hindered because Jesus will grow his kingdom despite hindrances. You see, even if Paul's plans to go back to Syria now are temporarily you know, set aside, no matter... He just goes back through Macedonia and gets more opportunity to encourage those same guys again. If we look back at our map, oops, sorry, go back one, you can see that the map has got two-way arrows because he's going back the way he came. Trying to stop the growth of God's kingdom is kind of like trying to push a beach ball underwater. It is a fruitless exercise. It will never succeed. You know, you try and push it down underwater, but then it just shoots sideways and bursts up somewhere else. That is Paul's big travel journey. Now we move on to consider his traveling buddies. Verse 4, let's keep going. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went ahead and waited for us at Troas. Here they are, all on the screen. I'm sure that's exactly what they look like. Two little points I want to make about these guys. Firstly, 
These companions of Paul are from all different places. They're from all over the world. Left to right, we've got Berea and Thessalonica. They're in the region of Macedonia, where Paul's just been touring through. Derby and Lystra, they're in the province of Galatia. And then Ephesus, of course, is in the province of Asia, where Paul started. These seven guys met Paul on his earlier journeys, and now they've been sent by their respective churches as representatives to join him on his missionary work on his later journeys. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty cool. You see, gospel mission to all nations generates disciple-making disciples from those nations who go out to other nations. It's kind of a self-perpetuating thing. The second thing I want us to learn from Paul's buddies is this. The strengthening work of the church is not a one-man mission. Paul did not, Paul could not, do his mission work alone. And it's not even as if it was Paul's mission all along, and then he just had seven little apprentices or buddies who just helped him out and gave him a hand and passed him the tools when he needed it. No, no, no. These guys are valuable partners. These guys play critical roles in Paul's work. It's not a one-man mission. The church is not the minister. Just, just call it out. What does the word church mean? What, what, what does that word mean? Gathering, that's right. By very definition, the church is multiple people gathered together because they have something in common, that is, following and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. As multiple members, then, of one body, we all have a part to play, every one of us. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. At the moment, or over the past couple of weeks, uh, many of our staff team are on, have been on well-deserved holidays. Now, does this mean that all of a sudden our church is suddenly broken? That, you know, all our progress in the faith suddenly just hits pause and we wait for them to all come back and fix us up again? No. We're not Catholics. We don't rely on a pope. We rely on the Word of God and on one another. I strengthen you in the faith as you strengthen me in the faith. We get on with our daily work of strengthening each other by God's Word together. Because the strengthening work of the church is not a one-man mission. So what do we learn from Paul's big trip through Macedonia and Achaia? He's going around strengthening existing believers. And as he, as he strengthens them, by preaching God's word. He's not alone in achieving this mission because he's surrounded by a bunch of faithful mission partners from all over the world because the strengthening work of the church is not a one-man mission. That's our first short story done, and we're about at the 15-minute mark, so if you've dozed off, wake up. Here we go. Second story, point two. This is about a sermon sleepyhead. Once Paul and his companions are reunited in Troas, uh, we get this little account of one evening of their seven-day stay there. From verse 7, read with me in your Bible. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. In this little zoomed-in snapshot of Paul's typical routine of, of his visits, we see him encouraging and strengthening the believers. He's only with them for seven days, and on the last day, they come together to share a meal, which is probably the Lord's Supper. Not 100% sure, but probably. They come together to do that and to hear the Word of God preached. Imagine for a sec that you're in growth group one week, 
and you know that for some reason, maybe, I don't know, you're flying to America the next day forever or something, but for whatever reason, this is the last growth group session that you'll be with these people, okay? Just imagine that. How would you spend those final hours together? For Paul, the priority in his final hours with these guys is to preach to them. But it's not just a priority for Paul, it's a priority for all the people. They've come together on a Sunday afternoon after a big week of work, about to head into another week, and they're, yet they're willing to stay up late into the night to midnight to hear more from the Word of God. The church in Troas is eager to be strengthened by God's Word. How do we muscle up for the Christian life? By taking seriously our own learning of God's Word. But more of that later on. Let's keep going. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Poor Eutychus. This account might read as a bit of a funny story on the surface, but it actually is quite tragic. Eutychus is described as a young man. In ancient times, this could have been as young as 10, 12, 14 years old. So what we're reading about here is actually the sudden tragic death of a child or a teenager. Let's imagine the scene. It's 11.30 p.m. The sun is well and truly set. It's dark and cold outside, but it's warm inside. There are many lamps. The upstairs room is packed full of people. The Apostle Paul is up the front of the room, preaching and teaching the Word of God. All his seven, seven companions from around the world, they're there as well. The rest of the room is packed full of men and women from the church at Troas. Eutychus is seated in a window up the back. The window is just an opening in the wall. There's no glass pane. He's tired from the week's work. He's excited that Paul's come back to visit his church, but he's fighting to stay awake. His shoulders sink. His eyes slowly droop shut. The voice from the front fades to the back of his mind as Paul talks on and on. Eutychus falls backwards out of the window, dropping to the ground from the third story. Bang! People rush downstairs. His parents hurry over. He is picked up dead. Paul is among the stampede down the staircase. He comes to the front of the crowd around the dead boy. He throws himself down on the dead, the lifeless body, wrapping his arms around him. Don't be alarmed. He's alive. The boy opens his eyes. His parents help him to their feet. The crowd exclaims with amazement, he is alive. What a miraculous relief. The young man hugs his parents. They take him home alive and all the people are greatly comforted. This tragic story has a glorious ending. Why did Luke include it in his account? That's a good question. Maybe because something extraordinary happened that night in Troas. I mean, dead men raising to life, that doesn't happen very often. Maybe Luke included it in our Bible because it's similar to another story in the Old Testament of the prophet Elijah and Elisha both raising dead youths to life. Maybe that's why he included it. Maybe this story is here to show us the, the normalcy of tragedy and grief in the common human experience. All of these things could be true, but what I want us to see from this is this. Ready? 
the resurrection gives hope and that preaching is the priority. Resurrection hope, not for this world, but in the world to come. In my little creative retelling of verses 8, 9, 10, and 12, I hope you noticed I skipped verse 11. I hope you were checking against your Bible, against what I was saying. Verse 11 reads, Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking till daylight, he left. After God raised Eutychus to life through his servant Paul, Paul goes back upstairs. Presumably all the people go with him. What do they do? They break bread. They eat, which is once again likely to be the Lord's Supper. They remember the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And keep in mind, all of this is happening on the first day of the week, a Sunday, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. So putting all of this together, I wonder if, we took, if they took the Lord's Supper that night, again, to remind each other of Jesus' resurrection, which gives his people hope for resurrection too. Not for temporary resurrection on this earth. I mean, Eutychus, Elijah and Elisha's youths, uh, even Lazarus in John 11, all of those guys died, were raised back to life, but then they died again years later. No, we don't wait for or expect God to give bodily resurrection to us in this world. No, this world, this world is full of suffering, grief, tragedy, even, even terminal illness and death are the norm rather than the exception in this fallen world. And that is truly awful. But we do have hope for resurrection in the age to come, for life after death in heaven for eternity. Jesus' resurrection means that we too have resurrection. We are spiritually raised with Christ now, and after we die, our physical bodies will catch up with that spiritual reality. Eutychus's parents and the church in Troas may have been greatly comforted when they took him home alive. But we can take a greater comfort, for we have hope for resurrection for eternity. In our short story from Acts 20, what happens after they break bread? Paul keeps on preaching. This guy won't shut up. He keeps going until day. Can you imagine an all-nighter sermon? I mean, that's... I can't... Yeah, I know, right? That's right. No doubt now, after this uh, resurrection event, no doubt Paul is sharing words of encouragement about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We see yet again that the preaching of the word is a big priority for the Apostle Paul. It's also a priority for his listeners. They stay up all night to listen. And it's definitely a priority for Eutychus. I mean, he was exhausted, but he persisted in listening to the word of God. All right. I'm about to say the magic words that makes all the sleepyhead's ears prick up. Ready? And now for some implications to close. (laughs) If it's true that gospel mission involves strengthening existing believers by preaching God's word, then what are we going to do about it? Three points. One, write this down. You've got an outline on the back of your little piece of paper. Write this down if you want. Point one, invest Christianly in people for the long haul. Like Ken talked about at the, the men's brekkie, it might take 30 years, but God might still use your efforts to bear gospel fruit in people's lives. Paul revisited churches multiple times. The Christian witness is rarely a one-hit thing. So let me encourage you, keep praying for people's Christian growth. You never know how close someone is to accepting Jesus as Lord. They might become a Christian next week. Never give up on praying for someone. Use your share card. There's some waiting for you at the back table. How cool would it be to have someone come up to you in five years' time, 10 years' time, 15 years' time, or even in heaven, in eternity? Someone comes up to you and says, Hey, 
Thank you for investing in me Christianly all those years ago. You made a big difference in my life, in my walk with Jesus, and now I'm standing firm in him. That is the best thing anyone could ever come and tell me. I hope that is true for many people. Second point, we need each other, guys. The strengthening of the church is not a one-man mission. You might have heard of a gospel summary called Two Ways to Live. I've come up with my own two ways. It's called Two Ways to Church. There's two ways you can view church. Flourishing church or consumer church. Flourishing church, number one. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Colossians 3.16. We need one another. It's our job. It's our duty to teach and warn and build one another up from the Bible. We can do this heaps of ways. Read the Bible together. Encourage each other in conversation. Rebuke one another in conversation as we journey the Christian life shoulder to shoulder. Do it in our growth groups. We do it in one-to-one mentoring. We even do it as we sing to each other in church. If you're not connected to a growth group, let me encourage you to join one. You'll be encouraged. You'll have opportunity to encourage others. You'll form friendships. You'll get strengthened by God's word with other people. Come chat to me. Come chat to Gav if you'd like to join a growth group. Write it on your connect form if you'd like. If you are connected to a growth group, commit to it and keep leaning in to your church family there. That's flourishing church. We've got this word dwelling richly thing going on. Second one is consumer church. It's kind of like going to the movies. I'm just here to receive a service. I'm like a, a paying customer. You know, I turn up, I do a bit to help out, and then I sit down and receive what the church or the minister will provide for me. It's like a, a cruise ship versus a battleship. That's a backwards picture of church, friends. Something that bothers me is that sometimes we, we, we talk about our time together in church as a church service. We don't come here to receive a service. We come here to serve each other. I reckon a much better name for our time together on a Sunday would be a church gathering. That is what church ga- that's what church is, right? Get rid of the idea of consumer church. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. We need one another. Last point, then I'll shut up. The preaching of the word is a priority. So don't fall asleep in the sermon. In case you've got a too small view of the Bible, let me remind you, the Bible is God's word. Do you delight in God's word like the psalmist does in Psalm 1? If you give little effort to listening to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who created you, who loves you, who saved you, who adopted you, who listens to your prayers, if you give little effort to hearing from his voice from the very pages of Scripture, then, friends, you need to repent of that. Sermons are about teaching the Bible. Teaching and learning go together. The exercise requires a good teacher, but also requires a willing learner. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Now, I've got to level with you guys. I've sat through a lot of sermons in my short life. I'm a pastor's kid, for goodness sake. I know the struggle. I remember when I was in year six, I was allowed to start coming to night church. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And I've been part of night church ever since. But I soon realized that night church and Harrington Park, where I was also going, have the same sermons on the same day. I was like, you're kidding me. I've got to sit through the same talk twice on the same day. So boring. Like, surely there's better use of my time than sitting through the same talk again. You know, I could could plan my week. I could watch YouTube. I could do anything, you know. Surely anything's more useful than, than this. Then I grew up, and I realized 
that I don't go to church for my own sake. I go to church for the sake of other people. So if I'm falling asleep or scrolling on my phone during the sermon, well, that's going to be a massive discouragement to everyone else around me. So I can't do that. So here you go. Here's five top tips for keeping preaching the priority, to, keep, to have good sermon listening. Here's my top, top tips for sermon uh, listening. Here you go. Write this down if you want. Number one, bring your own paper Bible. Keep it open and read from it during the talk. Helps you keep interested. Helps you discern if the preacher is a heretic or not. How do you know what I'm saying is true if you're not checking it against the Bible? Bring your own paper Bible and keep reading it throughout the talk. Second tip, write notes. You've got that little multi-purpose piece of paper. Even if you never look at it again, writing notes will help you like, stay focused during the talk. Keep the flow of what's being said clear in your mind. Think about it with your kids. If, if your kids come home from school and they haven't written a single note from all, a whole day of class... What does that show you about what they've learnt or you know, what they're actually valuing? Number three, if your phone causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. In other words, if your phone is distracting you from the Word of God, then don't bring it to church. Don't bring it to growth group. Once again, think about kids. If your kid's on a screen when they're meant to be doing something else or they're meant to be listening to you, what do you do? You tell them to turn off the screen and listen. Turn off the screen and focus. Adults, we are not so different after all. Tip number four, read the passage in advance. If a preacher spends 10, 15, 20 hours preparing a sermon, surely it's a good idea to spend five minutes reading the same passage in the lead-up so you can actually learn from it better. Do it with your spouse or your kids if you've got a spouse or kids. Read the passage in advance so that you're ready to learn from the Word of God. Here you go. Next Sunday, Gibson's going to be preaching to us from Acts 20, verse 13 to 38. Why not read that this week? There you go. There's some homework you can do if you want. Last tip. After the talk, ask questions. Ask, was the point of the talk the point of the passage? Is this talk actually teaching what the passage is saying? Or is the guy just saying something he cooked up on his laptop? You know, Is this actually what the passage is saying or not? Try to take one thing away to keep thinking about, to share with someone else, to put into practice this week. All right, that's enough from me. Why don't we pray? Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's good. We thank you that it's true. Father, we pray that you might help us to keep being strengthened by your word. Help us in our relationships with one another to lean in, to, to realize that we need one another because the, preaching, the, the strengthening of your church is not a one-man mission. Help us to keep taking seriously our study of your word that we might all be built up and grow fully mature in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. I invite the band up. Uh, we're going to sing uh, now. We've been sitting for a little while.